Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast that covers brand new movies out in theaters, including films that are on VOD and streaming services, usually pretty current. You can find the link to that on my website. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Check it out at quipster.net. Today we're going to get into the third and final of the Rambo films that we're going to be reviewing on this podcast. It is also taking place in the 1980s. There are two other Rambo films that came after this, but they were just in this century, not in the previous century. So I'm going to avoid those and stick with the ones that were made in the 1980s. Rambo 3, of course, is the one I'm talking about for today. It's a film from 1988. It's a movie, of course, starring Sylvester Stallone. Richard Crenna is back for the third time as Colonel Troutman. Mark DeJong, Kurtwood Smith, Spiros Focus, and Sasan Gabay are also in the film. It's an R-rated film, as are all the other Rambo films. It does have strong, pervasive violence and language. The runtime is an hour and 41 minutes. Peter MacDonald is the director. Sylvester Stallone and Sheldon Ledich provide the screenplay. Now, you can take Rambo 3 as kind of a purely propagandist return of this popular 1980s hero we see here. Sylvester Stallone, he dons the tightly bound bandana to the forehead again for yet another one-man rescue attempt. This time it's a little bit more personal. His former Vietnam commander and friend, Colonel Troutman, has been captured by Russian forces as he tries to rally the Afghan rebels who have been winning the resistance. The Afghani people are too suspicious of this American to willingly join in his crusade to spring Troutman from his prison cell. And that leaves him to have to go it mostly alone, although he does have one or two friends that he's made in his short introduction to the Afghani ranks. He does face formidable odds, as he always does. The prison is surrounded by landmines, by tanks, by hundreds of Russians, and the Ruski leadership is as corrupt and uncaring as the worst of them. I'd like to say there's a lot more to the story than that, but not really a lot more. This film was greenlit pretty much within a year after the major success of its predecessor, Rambo First Blood Part 2. This is the third entry. This entry would get the green light for a shoot to begin sometime in late 1986. The budget at that time was a sizable $30 million. You had Highlander director and also music video director Russell Mulcahy. He was personally picked by Sylvester Stallone to direct based on Highlander and those music videos. And at that time, he was working on a script by Harry Kleiner based on an idea by Sylvester Stallone himself. He wanted a message movie that would shed light on this genocide that was being perpetrated by the Soviet Union in this country that very few Americans had been paying attention to at that time. And they had set a tentative date for a very patriotic July 4th of 1987. However, they experienced a few delays, including Stallone's rejection of that Harry Kleiner script. And that would end up pushing the date back to Thanksgiving later in 1987. They looked for a lot of shooting locations. They initially thought that they were going to shoot in England, but due to the budgetary considerations, it would follow in the footsteps of its predecessor by getting shot in Mexico. But after plunking down about $5 million worth of sets, only to find that the location in Mexico that they had chosen was just not going to work for the scope that they were intending, 
they ended up shifting that and they looked for a place somewhere in the United States that would work, but to no avail. They finally settled for a few spots in Israel. They had the Dead Sea region that would substitute for Afghanistan pretty well, and they would do smaller shoots to be done in Thailand and some pickup shops later in the shoot in Yuma, Arizona, where they originally intended that they might do some of the desert scenes, but they would end up doing some of the big battles there later, primarily because there were a lot of restrictions on where and when and what type of shooting that they were allowed to do while they were in Israel. Now, as with the prior two films, Sylvester Stallone would insist on rewriting the script. At that time, that was redone by Sheldon Ledich. Stallone was vowing to make Rambo 3 a much more realistic and less cartoonish effort than the second film. He was pretty uncomfortable with how that film ended up, even though it was a huge box office bonanza. Meanwhile, the budget for Rambo 3 would end up getting bumped up again and again to accommodate Stallone's initially whopping $16 million price tag to star in the film. He would end up, as the budget would soar, waiving his fee in exchange for a hefty percentage of the profits, and he also asked for a Gulfstream jet that they used for transportation on the film. Carico partner Mario Casar had similarly gifted a Gulfstream jet to Arnold Schwarzenegger when they were making Commando, so he wanted a piece of that action too. The budget would shoot up to about $63 million by the end of it. Despite being involved for over a year, the freewheeling director, Russell Mulcahy, would end up, unfortunately, getting fired. It was kind of amicable. Sylvester Stallone and Russell Mulcahy remained friends, even to this day. But they had creative differences on where they wanted to go with the film, and Stallone was pretty much the final word on that. Mulcahy had wanted to shoot Rambo 3 as a big epic film with a lot of dark undertones and a much more epic feel with a lot of faraway shots. Stallone wanted a much more personal film here because it was a personal story for Rambo. He didn't like a lot of the decisions that were being made to not include a lot of close-ups of him. He did not like some of the other casting, these pretty boy actors that Mulcahy had hired. In addition to Mulcahy, there were a lot of firings. They would come fast and furious through the first two and a half weeks of the shoot. Cameramen, assistant directors, all kinds of people. Cinematographer Rick Waite, who had worked with Stallone on his previous film, Cobra, was also canned. And that brought in second unit director Peter McDonald. He was promoted to take the helm. Albeit reluctantly, this was his first film as a director. And there was also going to be photography at that time by David Gerfinkel, who had worked with Sylvester Stallone on Over the Top, but he also would end up getting replaced by camera operator John Stanier. Now, McDonald, as the director, would try to proceed to find some humor, some vulnerability to add to Rambo's character. He felt that that would be important, but a lot of that would end up getting stripped out by Stallone, who didn't think that that was going to be the main focus. And he, as I said, was the one calling the shots in the end. A large portion of Jerry Goldsmith's score is here, and it's great, but it's merely recycled mostly from his work on Rambo First Blood Part Two. David Morrell would once again write the novelization, although he was not necessarily happy with the direction that the movies were going either. Now, high temperatures during the shoot became a real issue. The heat would sometimes soar past 120 degrees Fahrenheit on many days, and it got even 10 degrees hotter than that when they were shooting up in the mountains for some of the scenes with the Russian fighters. Stallone maintains that the major sunburn that he received throughout the course of this shoot in the desert damaged his skin to the point where he has permanently a reddish tint to his complexion. Caraco during this time would also end up getting sued by Golan Globus because of their work in Tel Aviv. 
Carolco had been bouncing checks. They ended up settling at some point later for the money. It was not the best of times for the aging Rambo on top of this to be released in 1988. It had just missed its window, I think, for relevancy. The Russians were already pulling out of Afghanistan at the time of the film's release. In fact, 10 days before, they were pretty much giving up altogether on their stay there. Ronald Reagan was on the way out. The Soviet Union was already on the verge of collapse during that time. And under Mikhail Gorbachev and his glasnost policy, they were turning around some of their old ways. And that made them, in the media, rather sympathetic adversaries that were being watched by Americans in news in real time. And that was too bad for the makers of the film because this would be, at the time, the most expensive film ever made, at least up to that point. And unfortunately, at the time of its release, it didn't even make its $60 million back at the U.S. box office. I mean, it made two and a half times that much in the previous effort. It did still do well internationally, though. It did still do well internationally, though. It made about $135 million internationally, so it held up pretty well. But in the United States, it was mostly a no-go. So without a great deal of patriotism to be found in the struggle and this lack of nobility in Rambo's tenacious quest to get a friend out of a prison camp, because he'd do it for me, it's just, that's his only rationale, I think the pleasures of Rambo 3 lie mostly in the mechanics of the action movie setting, which by this point in the series had been mounted on predictable rails to get to its inevitable conclusion. Now, critical write-ups at the time were not kind for this third entry, even worse than the previous one. It would eventually go on to get nominated for Worst Picture at the Golden Raspberry Awards, just like the previous one had the Razzies. It would lose to Cocktail, the Tom Cruise film from that year, although Stallone would end up grabbing the Worst Actor Prize, nevertheless, for Rambo 3. It would also set a Guinness World Record for the most acts of violence committed in one movie up to that point. It has been eclipsed quite a bit since. It does have, I didn't count these, but reportedly 221 acts of violence, over 70 explosions, and at least 108 characters that are shown on the screen being slaughtered for our entertainment. Now, in addition to the box office not being there, it didn't even reach number one. The previous film had been number one for the first four weeks of its release. It didn't even get number one in its initial week of release. It lost to Crocodile, Dundee 2, not even a great movie, in its first week, and it would fall out of the top 10 within one month's time, and that resulted in $53 million, far short of that 60-plus million dollar budget, and you don't even have to include advertising in that. But as I mentioned, it was saved internationally at the very least. Now, fans of Rambo get what they pay for in terms of explosions. You have a lot of good stunts here. High body counts if you're really into that. A lot of nifty ways to kill an adversary in this film. So if you're into rooting on, you know, Americans shooting up Russians, at least at the time, this definitely gives you those glory shots. But unless you're a diehard action nut, I don't think that there is anything else going for this outing that would appeal to anyone specifically. On top of that, although the film is dedicated to the noble people, the gallant people, as they say at the end of this film, of Afghanistan, the politics of the plot are virtually non-existent when you're actually watching this. Rambo could have been fighting alongside just about any foreign army that's fighting a communist threat, and the film would have been virtually identical in its execution. Now, since you know what you're getting, namely more of the same, I think that for a lot of people who are not really into the mechanics of the film. It's pretty boring most of the time. It never really gives audiences the kind of food for thought that the previous two Rambo outings did regarding the wound that never quite healed, that Vietnam War experience that weighs so heavily, at least it used to, 
on Rambo's mind. Now, Stallone keeps the dialogue here minimal, even allowing for a couple of one-liners here for comic relief. Those gags may be a little bit out of character, but it does bring a certain life to the dreariness of some of the rest of the film that suggests how Stallone might have actually made this endeavor a little bit more tolerable if he just wanted to have fun with a lot of this outlandish material altogether, much in the way that he did for the second film, even though he was trying to get away from the cartoonish nature of it. Now, a lot of the footage of this pro-Islamic forces flick, which is kind of interesting to observe nowadays, it would ironically be shot, as I mentioned, in Israel. And Israel was a country itself that was facilitating in the non-U.S. sales of weapons that would end up in Afghan hands. And of course, as history panned out, some of the very factions that Rambo fights along with at this point of the war, would eventually, sometime later, serve as the backbone of the Taliban. A lot of these Mujahideen soldiers would form the basis of the Taliban, who ended up assisting al-Qaeda, the group that, of course, would unleash heinous terrorist attacks around the world, including the United States, most notably, as we all know, and a lot of other Western powers, further tainting whatever goodwill that the makers of this film had intended to honor these freedom-fighting Mujahideen. It turns out that this film could rightly be seen as little more than thinly-veiled propaganda. The United States CIA had actually been actively funneling money in through the Pakistani ISI with Operation Cyclone at the time, so this really covers over a lot of that with the so-called propaganda of the war. Now, Rambo had turned here, unfortunately, from a symbol of the Vietnam veteran and their angst against government and societal neglect to now being a complete tool for propagating dubious military doctrines to the American public. Now, when you can't even feel good that Rambo has eviscerated the crap out of those rat commie bastards at the end of the film... What purpose does a film like this really even serve anymore other than for completist Rambo fans? And luckily, we were spared. There was originally a longer intended ending that has Rambo staying with the Mujahideen as his new warrior family. That was luckily filmed out before the film would be made completely unpalatable to most American audiences in the post-9-11 America. For, and for all of that, of all the Rambo films, I think this one has dated the most. It is not really a film that I highly recommend today, even though I don't think it's necessarily a bad film. It's just as a movie that goes through a lot of predictable motions, and it doesn't have a lot of the chutzpah or the interesting wrinkles that the previous two films did. So for that, I can only give Rambo 3 two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means that it's lacking something vital that would keep it from being a movie that I could recommend to most people in that thing that it's really missing here is to do something more with the character of Rambo other than to serve as a conduit for Americans to root on their personal interests in trying to defeat communists. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, it was just a little bit too late to take care of that since communism in Russia was going out of style. So two stars is the best I can give Rambo 3. Sorry, Rambo fans, I could not get with this one as well as the previous two, even though the second one I'm only lukewarm on. So that's it for the Rambo films. I was interesting looking back at all of these. I, I don't know that I take a lot of the Rambo films to heart, but First Blood, I do think, is definitely worth recommending if you're a Stallone fan and if you're at all interested in seeing what all the hubbub of Rambo was about, because I do think that that one captures at least the character in a much more interesting way than any of its sequels. Now, we're going to get away from the Rambo films, as I mentioned at the time, so I'm going to actually take a departure. I could continue on with a lot of these Commando-style films, 
But after doing six straight, pretty much, I kind of want to get away from some of the war films for a little while anyway. I will return to them at some point. And I'm going to go into a movie that kind of ties in with Rambo 3 in many respects because part of it, a good part of it, is set in Afghanistan with the Afghan rebels. A completely different type of movie, though. It stars Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. And it's from 1985, purely a comedy. One I saw when I was about 15 years old, and I thought it was hilarious at that time. I've enjoyed it since, but it's been a long time since I've seen it. It is called Spies Like Us. You know, directed by John Landis, written by Aykroyd and Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, who were pretty hot comedy screenwriters during the mid-1980s. So looking back for that, check it out. Spies Like Us for next week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts on Rambo, any of the Rambo films that you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, you can find links to my other podcast, my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, and my Instagram as well. So check all that information out at my website. Until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 